This podcast is brought to you by Schweitzer Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit any of the links in the description. And now, please enjoy the message. Well, welcome today. My name is Spencer. I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, Today, we are continuing our series on the last week, and the idea of the series is really simple. Um, Every week, we are just simply looking at the final, the last week of Jesus. Um, You might wonder why we're doing this, but the gospel writers, the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spent about 30% of the time walking through the final week of Jesus. So this is part three of the series. We're gonna be on the third day of that week. It's Tuesday. Tuesday is the busiest day of the final week of Jesus, the last week of Jesus. And so because it's so busy, we're not gonna be able to read all of it today for the sake of time. I don't think you want me just to read to you for like 30 minutes here because that's about how long it would take to read all of the things that Jesus goes through on that final Tuesday of of his life. So um, as we go through this, we're gonna focus our attention on one area, but the whole day is really about a key question. Um, What gives Jesus the right? Like what, what right does Jesus have to tell us how to live? That's the key question of Tuesday. And he talks about this in all kinds of ways. I encourage you to go read it for yourself. It's Mark uh, 11, 12, 13, all the way to 14. It's a long stretch of reading as we see Jesus really come back around over and over and over again to that question of what gives him the right to tell us how to live. So we're gonna spend our time today on one of the teachings he gives that day um, on the temple. It is um, in Mark chapter 12. It is a parable that he tells and here's how it goes. Mark 12. When Jesus began to speak to, then Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he said, another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Now, as far as parables go, these stories that Jesus told, um, this might be the parable that we read the least. I mean, the parables we love, the Good Samaritan, the Prodigal Son, those are great parables. Let's look at those all day long. But this parable, this is so, um, you know, not we don't read this so much, and, and that's because it's so uncomfortable. I mean, this, this parable challenges us, us to think about our lives exactly opposite from pretty much every message we've ever heard from the world in our entire life. So let's um, dig into this. And as we do this, let's, we're going to look at this parable in terms of three relationships. So first, there is the relationship between the 
owner and the tenants, and then there's a relationship between the tenants and the messengers, and then there's a relationship between the tenants and the son. And that's really our outline for how we're gonna handle this, our time together today. We're just gonna walk through those three relationships. So let's start with that first one, the relationship between the tenants and the owner. Now, as we get started on this, um, I'm just gonna say uh, some like obvious things, and this is gonna sound really elementary as we start here, but, but just for the sake of clarity, I think we have to be really, really um, um, blunt and obvious, however this, this might sound. So as we think about this relationship, we have the owner and we have the tenants. Uh, if you are the owner of the vineyard, that means that you get to decide how the vineyard should be operated, right? It's gonna be run by your policies, by your ideas, by your plans, whether it's good plans or bad plans, it doesn't really matter. You're the owner, so you get to set the agenda, you get to set the policies, the, the vineyard is going to be run by your word. Okay, now the vineyard is also going to produce this fruit for your benefit. I mean, you're gonna pay some people a fair wage, these tenants a fair wage to manage it, but as the owner, the benefit, the profits of the vineyard are yours. So to put that together, as the owner, you get to run the vineyard by your word, and it's going to produce for your benefit. Now those two things are, are, are absolutely key um, as we think about this, and I know that's super obvious, but for the sake of clarity, it needed to be said as we think about what's happening here and why Jesus told this parable. Because in context, um, there's a problem with how all of this is, is working. I mean, the, the problem, of course, is not the owner. The owner is, is doing everything as the owner should do. He's given this work to the tenants. They are um, now supposed to be running the, the vineyard for his, um, by his word and for his benefit. But there's a problem here. The, the problem is that the tenants are refusing to follow the owner's instructions. They're not managing it by his instructions, by his word. Instead, they're beating up the messengers who have come um, to give the owner's instructions. They're turning hostile to the owner. Um, they're keeping the profits for themselves. In essence, these tenant farmers are acting like the owner. Now, in context to all of why Jesus tells this, he, he tells this parable directed at the religious leaders of Israel. This is why he tells it. So in the Old Testament, the people of Israel were often called a vineyard. Isaiah especially uses that metaphor quite a bit to describe the people of Israel as a, as a, as a, as a vineyard. And so Jesus is pointing out here to remind these religious leaders, listen, he's like, listen, you are tenant farmers, not owners. But the religious leaders have gotten this all mixed up. Like Jesus is telling them, you are managing the vineyard um, that is Israel, you're supposed to do it by God's word and you're supposed to do it for his benefit, for his glory. But instead, the religious leaders have gotten this all mixed up and they're managing the vineyard that is Israel, not by God's word, they're doing it by their own wisdom and tradition and not for God's benefit, for his glory, they're doing it for their own power. They're tenants who are acting like, like owners. Now, if we step back from that context for just a, a bit, there's a much broader principle um, that is true 
Whether you live in Jerusalem as a Jewish leader in the year 33 or you live in Springfield in the year 2024, um, because the principle here is that Jesus is laying out is that, is that this is a crucial, crucial principle to understanding how life works. And the truth is the vast majority of us don't understand this principle and it causes all kinds of problems um, in our lives. And pretty much every message you've ever received from the world is the opposite of this principle that Jesus is making here with this parable. So, so think about the broader principle. Let's, let's think about our life and all of the things that fill our lives. I mean, our intellect, our creativity, our abilities, our talents, our body, our sexuality, our gender, our vocation, our resources, our power, our influence, our leadership, like the list goes on and on and on. All of these things that fill our life. Well, here's the principle that Jesus wants you to understand. You must learn to see your life as a tenant and not as an owner. Because your life is not yours. You are not the owner of this. This is the broader point of this parable. When it comes to your life and all of the things that make up your life, you are not the owner. You are the tenant. And so therefore, we manage our life as a tenant which means that we live by God's word and we live for his glory. We live by God's word, we live for his glory. Um, be careful, therefore, that you do not begin to get that confused and begin to live as a tenant thinks, thinking he's an owner because you're not. You are a tenant, not an owner. Now, it is in the nature of the human heart, though, to get this relationship mixed up. It's the nature of the human heart to, to believe that our life belongs to us. I mean, think about how we talk. It's my body, it's my sexuality, it's my time, it's my career, it's my money, it's my intellect, it's my gifts, it's my talent, it's how we talk. So we begin to believe that our life is ours. Therefore, we can do what we want with what our is ours, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You fundamentally misunderstand how life works because your life is not your own. Yes, you have a mind, but that mind was given to you by God. Therefore, you are not free to do whatever you want with your mind. You're not free to just fill it with whatever you want to fill it with. You are not free just to believe anything you want to believe about the world. No, your life is to be governed, your mind is to be governed under God's word for his glory. Yes, you have a body. It was given to you by God. But the purpose of your body is not just to seek pleasure to seek what feels good. You're not free just to live your life, your body, use your body like that. That's not how this works because, because your life was given to you by God and to live under his authority, to live um, by his word and for his glory means that you don't live in those ways. Or yes, you, you, you have um, possessions, money, resources, all given to you by God. It's all his to start with, but you can't do anything you want with them because, because you're not the owner. You are the tenant. And this fundamentally... Um, misunderstanding will, will wreck our lives when we, when we don't get this. But Jesus' point is really, really simple and really, really direct. Um, your life is not your own. Your life is not your own. At the heart of this parable then is a recognition of authority that our lives properly lived are to be lived under the authority of God. We live by God's word for his glory. That is the purpose of our lives. Our lives are not our own to do with as we wish. And this recognition of God's authority over our life is, is really, honestly, 
the most difficult thing for the human heart to accept. I mean, this, this has always been true and it's definitely true in our modern life that we find today. I mean, think about this just kind of historically, this question of authority, because I think it helps cast how difficult it is to, to think about this and how common it is not to live under God's authority. So just kind of thinking about this historically for just a second, um, it used to be in the West that there was a time where the authority of life was the church. It was the Pope, it was the priest, they told you how to live. Now it turns out that they were super corrupt and, and not all living under God's authority, so you had the Protestant Reformation. And as the Protestant Reformation took place under Martin Luther about 500 years ago, this shift, massive shift in authority took place where Martin Luther challenged the church not with the authority of the Pope, but with the authority of you know, the Bible. There was a shift that took, massive, massive shift that took place in the West. Another huge shift in authority took place in the West was about 300 years ago with the Enlightenment. And under the Enlightenment, the, the new authority that arose for folks was science and education. These are the new things that people started to live their lives under. And so the, the remnants of this kind of thinking are, of course, still massively with us today. Um, you know, I think about how common it is for people to look to a scientific study and say, ah, look what this scientific thing showed. That, that's how I'm going to live my life now. Like, like, for instance, just the other day, I read this, this article about um, how there was a scientific study that showed that there is a link between depression and loneliness, which sounds honestly quite obvious to me. Um, but, the, but the point of the article that I was reading was like, look at this scientific study. There's a, there's a, a link here between depression and loneliness. Therefore, there, the author was trying to encourage people to go join a group, be with people, like fight your loneliness. So, you know, go join a civic club or a book club or an exercise group, go do something with other people. And, and of course, churches were, were left off that list. But, but the whole idea of that logic of that argument was something like this. Science has shown this to be true so therefore, you should live your life based on what science has shown to be true. You may not think about it like that, but that whole logic of that kind of thinking is you are to live under the authority of science. Science is telling you how to live. Now, I'm not anti-science, not in the slightest bit, but that kind of logic is an interesting thing for people to base their lives on, especially when science uh, the nature of science is to change based on new discoveries. And so it's like, you know, I forget, are we supposed to be drinking coffee right now or not? Because, you know, one study says this, but another study says that, and it's always changing. But so it's an interesting way to begin to live your life. But this is what a lot of people do. It's like, you know, science says this, or that professor said that. And so therefore, you know, I base my choices on how I live my life based on what those people say. That is to live under their authority. But pretty much everyone understands that there's another shift that's taking place right now. Massive shift, just as much as it was with the Reformation, just as much as it was with Enlightenment. Sociologists now talk about how the new authority that people are living under is what many, many people are writing about that they call the, quote unquote, the autonomous self. The word autonomous, by the way, it comes from two Greek words. Auto means um, self and nomos, Greek word for law. And so the new authority that so many people are living under with this postmodern, post-Christian, post-truth world that we find ourselves in, the new authority is just simply you. Your experience, your identity, your understanding of life, this is now the new authority. This is now what guides us and leads us. And, and so there, there's a fundamental question that has to be asked by every single follower of Jesus, no matter the age in which we live, um, but every single follower of Jesus is going to have to wrestle with a very 
simple, direct, and painful question, which is this. Who is in charge? Who is the owner? Who's calling the shots? Whose authority am I going to live under? So for me to have faith in Jesus, it means that I have to come to see that I am not the owner. There has to be a shift, a conversion that takes place. A Christian philosopher, uh, Christopher Watkin, describes this conversion like this. I think this is quite wise. He writes this. He says, It is hard to underestimate the extent to which many in our society today fail to consider what the Bible has to say about God on its own terms, specifically that God is the owner, that God has authority, that, that, that God is the one who gets to call the shots. And why do we fail to take the Bible on its own word? Why do we fail to understand this? We, he goes on, he says, because we fail to do this because that would require admitting that our own autonomous reason may not be the most reliable, truth-discerning tools in the universe. One of the crucial pennies to drop in the minds of those who find their way to faith in their adult years is often the realization that if there really is a God such as the Bible reveals him to be, then he is smarter than I am and his judgment is more reliable than mine. If he and I differ on a matter and if he is really God and I am really a creature, then it is more than reasonable to assume that he is correct and I am mistaken. A fundamental question every single follower of Jesus, no matter the age in which we live, is going to have to ask, who is the owner? Who is in charge of my life? This is the shift to live under God's authority, you know, by his word and for his glory. That, that shift is painful. It is hard. It requires repentance and confession and confronting our own failure. And that is what most of us don't want to do. This is why so many of us never make this shift. We may believe in Jesus in our heads, but we don't begin to make this shift. And this is why so many Christians, our lives look no different than the unbelieving world. We fight the same anxieties. We have the same kinds of dysfunctional marriages. We have the same self-medicating practices. We have the same values and priorities. We have to handle conflict with the same bitterness and pride. We have the same idols of money and power as the unbelieving world. Why do we not look any different? Well, because in reality, we have lost this core fundamental question that Jesus is getting to here. We are seeing ourselves as the owners of our lives and not the tenants. And so this change from seeing myself as the owner uh, to a tenant, I mean, it is, it is a painful change. It requires so much repentance and it works so deep in our life. And and to admit that I'm wrong, to admit that I see things falsely, I mean, that I'm not self-sufficient, that I'm not in control, most of us would rather not go down that road of, of repentance, and so we just don't do it. We don't do it. And it's a painful thing. It's a painful thing to do. I mean, if you want to know how painful it is, just look at how the tenants responded to the owner when he began to challenge them. He would send messengers. What do they do? They, they beat up the messengers. They fight the messengers. They actively resist the owner in every possible way. This reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. He describes um, our life when we live it for ourselves like this. He says, the mind governed by the flesh. That is the natural state of the human mind. The natural state of the human mind, the human heart. That's what he's describing here. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile. This is what the message, this is what the attendants are. They're hostile to the owner. Why are they hostile? Why are we hostile to God? 
Well, the, the mind governed by the flesh, the natural state of our mind, it does not submit to God's law. We cannot live under his authority, nor can it do so. Fundamental question. Every follower of Jesus is going to have to ask, who is the owner? Who is the owner of my life? Is it me? Is it God? What authority am I living under? That brings us to the second of the three relationships. We're going to have to pick up our pace a little bit here. But the next relationship we've got to talk about is the tenants and the messengers. So in the parable, each time the owner sends a messenger to these, these tenants, the tenants have so much hostility to the owner that they not only will not listen and they reject his authority, they turn violent towards the messengers, which really means that they turn violent to the owner. That's what Paul was talking about in Romans 8. We turn, we turn hostile to God, to the owner of our lives. Now, obviously, this is meant to tie in, us into the Old Testament, how God sent prophet after prophet after prophet to the people of Israel to get their attention. And God continued to send prophets to tell the people of Israel that, the, that his vineyard, that is Israel, was to be tended by God's word for his glory. But over and over and over again, the prophets were ignored, sometimes violently. Go read the Old Testament prophets. Some of them were treated just terribly. And if you read the parable closely in Mark 12, um, each messenger got treated worse and worse. Like, like the tenants became less and less receptive to the desires of the owner. Now, again, there's a broader principle here. That God, in his great mercy, never leaves us without many, 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 many chances to hear the truth that we are not the owners. He just continues to speak to us. Just like in the Old Testament, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet. God still sends messengers into our lives over and over and over again to remind us that we are not the owners of our lives. I mean, think about, think about what are the messengers that God sends today? I mean, I can think of a few things at the top of my head. Um, maybe for some of us, it was a church maybe a ministry, a pastor maybe. And the thing about church is sometimes um, church doesn't tell you what you want to hear, it tells you what you need to hear. But if you don't want to hear truth, then you're going to reject it. That's, that's what happens, you, you, you move on. I've seen this happen a lot when a church or a pastor is accused of being maybe too political or not political enough. And what that really means, that accusation really means is that the, the pastor doesn't share my politics and my view of the world. And so therefore challenged me to maybe see things differently. And when we're challenged with truth, we often just back off and we reject it and we dismiss it out of hand. Or maybe another messenger would be, maybe, maybe some of us have friends in our lives who, um, who've come to speak the truth in love. But we don't wanna hear the truth, the truth is painful. Instead, we want friends who are going to support us. And what that really means is we want friends who are just going to affirm every bad decision we make. We often hide this behind the guise of empathy, which is a great value. Empathy is a great value. But a lot of times that word, the way it's used in culture today, is to say, I just want someone who's going to affirm and listen to me and just make me feel better about all of the bad things I'm already doing in my life, the harmful and destructive things I'm already doing in my life. And so when someone comes with truth, it's like, I don't want to hear that truth. Or I think about how sometimes, you know, a messenger might just be life. Have you ever thought about life as a messenger? Because life is constantly coming at us with this message that you are not in control. You're not in control. I mean, think about anxiety. Anxiety is a messenger. Anxiety is that constant fear that I'm not enough or that I don't have enough or that life is out of control for me. And so it's this constant, this constant fear that is in our minds reminding us that we're out of control, which is the whole truth. I mean, if you're a tenant who's acting like an owner and you're, you've got that mixed up, the one thing that you're going to strive for is control. 
And until you can say to God, thy will be done, you will always struggle with that fear of anxiety. It's like it's a messenger telling you, hey, there is something that is wrong here because you've gotten the relationship all wrong. You are a tenant who's been acting like an owner. And so the messengers come over and over and over again. I think one of the things we would ask ourselves is what, what messengers has God been sending me that I have been rejecting, dismissing, beating them up in my minds, maligning them, thinking negatively of them, and not open to the truth. Third, this brings us to the relationship between the tenants and the son. And of course, as we think here and we read this, Jesus is talking about the religious leaders um, who have so fundamentally rejected the owner that um, they will end up killing the son, which of course is Jesus himself. And in context of this parable, this killing is going to happen in just a few days. This is on Tuesday. The killing is going to happen on Friday of that same week. But again, don't miss the broader, the broader point here. The death of the son is the natural flow of events of what happens when tenants refuse to acknowledge the owner. It's a natural flow of events. The human heart so craves autonomy that the only two options available to us are simple. Submit to God or reject Him. There's only two options. Submit to God or reject Him. The human heart, it craves autonomy and it has ever since the Garden of Eden. Therefore, the human heart is hostile to God. But God does this amazing thing with our hostility. Because when we live with hostility to God because of Christ's claim of ownership of our lives, God turns us around on us and he gives us a chance to be right with him. And he doesn't just send us messengers for us to hear the truth. He, he, he enters our hostility and gives of himself. The Bible says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is, that while we lived in rebellion and hostility to God, rejecting his authority, thinking our lives were ours as we wanted to live them, for our glory and not his. Even as we rejected messenger after messenger, he still sent his son. He still sent the son. This is what Jesus is saying at the end of this parable. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He's describing himself that the son is the path to being reconciled with the owner and finding life as it's meant to be lived. So a fundamental question every follower of Jesus is going to have to ask, going to have to wrestle with. Who's the owner? Who's in charge? Whose authority is running our life? Is it God? Is it something else? Is it ourself? And we fail to understand that we are not the owner, that we are tenants. Our lives are gonna be out of sorts in all kinds of ways. Misplaced priorities, disordered desires and lives, idols that we put before God, there's all kinds of ways. And maybe you know exactly what that, that's like because you've been reaping some of that. You've been reaping some of that, that disordered life that God wants you to change from and move from. And he, he, you've, been, you've been reaping that. But the good news is that even in our rebellion, even in our hostility, even as we've rejected messenger after messenger after messenger, the Son has come and given himself for us. So if you struggle um, to give up control to Christ, if that's a scary idea to pray that prayer, thy will be done to the Lord Jesus, I just want you to think about this. How can it be scary to give up control, to say to Jesus that you are the owner? 
to give up control of your life. How can that be scary to give up control of your life to the one who would give up his life for you? Let's pray. And so Father, today, um, a fundamental question all of us have to ask, who is the owner? And we want to acknowledge that we are tenants, not owners. When we mix this up, all kinds of problems come into our lives. We're lived in, out of sorts in all kinds of ways. But may today be a day for us to hear the message that we are not the owners, we are tenants. And for those of us who may struggle to give up control of our lives to you, we want to hear the gospel message that the Son has come and given himself for us. So how can it be scary to give up control to the one who would lay down his life for us? So Lord, we look to you, we thank you, we love you that you have given yourself for us, even in our rebellion, even in our hostility, even in all of the ways that we've rejected you and not submitted to your ways, you have come for us. And we thank you that you love us that much. For anyone who's um, with us today and, and wants to turn to you and give up control of our lives and turn to you and, and live a life that is honoring to you by your word for your glory, we just offer up a simple prayer. Lord Jesus, would you forgive me my sin and would you lead my life? And we thank you that in our sin, in our rebellion, in our hostility, this is when Christ has come to die for us. So therefore, we can trust you with every aspect of our lives. It is in your name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Schweitzer podcast. We hope you found this message to be helpful and encouraging. If you enjoyed this experience, please remember to share us with your friends and neighbors. Thanks again for stopping by and remember, you are loved.